do we exist? Were we created with a purpose or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is The Universe Next Door. You know, last week when I did the Reformation thing, originally I was actually thinking about doing something on Halloween, uh, but I just didn't care enough, to be honest. It's like I wasn't motivated. I don't, I think it's just a conscience thing. I don't, I didn't care enough to actually go and do the research. I mean, I've done the research at, at different points, and every time you find an origin story in regard to Halloween, they're always different. There's like 10 different ones. Some people are like, oh, it goes back to 3,000 years ago. And then there's some people who say it's 600 years old. And then, so anyway, I didn't care enough. If you do, I'm sorry. Maybe I should have done something on it. But the Reformation is more important. And so what I thought I would do is something that would get me in trouble with both Roman Catholics and Protestants. So none of you will like me when I'm done, uh, regardless of where you stand. We're going to talk about original sin. And not only original sin, but where it came from how it sort of came about, uh, what does scripture have to actually say about it, and how original is it? Um, And when I say original sin, we'll get into this later, everybody has to have some idea of a a view of original sin because there was an original sin in the garden. And so the question isn't, was there original sin? The question is, what is the result of the sin of Adam and Eve? And specifically, Adam is named in scripture. Uh, But what is the result of that original sin when sin came into the world? Is there original guilt? Uh, what does this mean for this idea of an age of accountability? What about children when children pass? Do we have any scriptural support in this um, sort of view that you hold of original sin to say that they go to be with the Lord if they were to pass prematurely? And what about the Virgin Mary? Um, can you, if you hold a view of original guilt and you're not Catholic, can you actually disagree with the Catholic and say that Mary was a sinner? that this idea of the immaculate conception, that she was sinless from birth all the way through life, um, can this idea actually be sort of disproven uh, and be disagreed with if you hold the view of original guilt? In other words, that uh, because of Adam's sin, you are guilty and therefore you're born guilty and need to be redeemed not just of sin, but from original sin and original guilt. So we have a lot to cover today. It's going to be interesting. Um, As usual, there's going to be a lot of information. We are going to be opening the Catholic Catechism again, the 1992 uh, Catholic Catechism. What would we do without you? So that's going to be fun. But really what I'm seeking to do here, you've probably heard a lot of these Catholic views. You've, You've heard, yeah, I know the Roman Catholic Church believes Mary was perpetually a virgin. They believe she's sinless. But I want to show you why Number one, you might hold some views that make it difficult for you to actually disagree with this without contradicting yourself or at least creating a dilemma you have to solve. And number two, I hope to make you think more about your own views, not just for the sake of thinking about it, though that's always good, but I want you to think about what is actually scriptural. Okay, so void of any historical opinion, void of any church, uh, early early church father, later church father, Reformation figures, uh, can you demonstrate your view from Scripture to yourself without dragging in Augustine, without dragging in John Calvin, without dragging in the Pope, without dragging in you name the source? Can you demonstrate your view of original sin to yourself scripturally? And I'm almost sure that throughout this episode, you're going to find a few things that are going to challenge you. So... Uh, 
before we begin, make sure you hit follow wherever you're listening. Uh, and if you are following the show, once you hit follow, go ahead and hit notify. So that way you're notified of new episodes. I guess you have to follow the show and hit notify. So hit follow, hit notify, and then you'll get alerted of new episodes when they come out. Generally, it's Monday nights at 6 p.m. Eastern time, but sometimes we release things out of the usual. Um, We do question and answers. We do extra content. uh, And actually, we're going to start doing a whole lot more stuff pretty soon. I can't wait to announce that probably over the next couple weeks. But um, super, super cool stuff coming up. There's going to be a lot of changes made to the podcast, and it's going to expand a little bit here. So I'm very excited about that. Like I said, I'll let you know in the next couple weeks um, what's going on. And also be sure to check out what we posted last night, Sunday night. Um, There's a little girl named Sophie in the ICU in Mexico. You can click that to hear the whole story. Um, But if you could help in any way, shape, or form, whether it be through giving, through the GoFundMe, or uh, by sharing that link on social media with your church members, that would be wonderful. Um, I'll link it in the description so you can check it out. But make sure to do that. And with that being said, uh, let's get started. So before we crack open the old catechism, here's my question for you. It's the same question I asked you a minute ago, so you probably won't be shocked or thrown off. What is your view of original sin, and can you prove it to yourself? Okay, there's the first question. The second question is, if you can prove it to yourself, where in Scripture would you go to demonstrate this view of original sin? And when I say original sin, I'm I'm implying original guilt here. We'll see why in a few minutes. But where would you go in Scripture? If you've thought this through... You'd probably go one of a handful of places. You might go to Romans 3, um, where Paul talks about sin pretty deeply and intensely, though I think some of it is undeniably metaphorical. Uh, you might go to Ephesians 2.3, that we're children of wrath by nature. You might go to the Psalms, where David talks about being conceived in iniquity. Okay, there's a lot of places you might go, but without the one verse that you're probably thinking, None of these really actually point to original sin. So where you'd have to go is you'd have to go to Romans 5.12. Um, just a key here, if you, if you haven't used Bible Hub, I don't, they don't pay me or anything. I'm not advertising them. But Bible Hub is actually really helpful if you don't have like a Bible software on your computer. Um, because on Bible Hub, you can type in a verse and it will pull up that verse from pretty much every known translation. So if you type in Romans 5.12 uh, on Bible Hub, it'll show, uh, looking at it right now, NIV, uh, NLT, ESV, the Berean St- Standard Bible, the King James Bible, the New King James Bible, New American Standard Bible. is very helpful. So we're going to go and we're going to look at Romans 5.12, and then we're going to sort of read the section around it so we can have an idea uh, of what's going on here. And I will read Romans 5 when we do the sort of... Um, context stuff. I'll read it from the ESV just so nobody can uh, get mad at me. But we're going to look at Romans 5.12. Let's look at the NIV. This is a big original sin verse. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. So that's just Romans 5.12. We're going to start with that. So notice what it says. Sin entered the world through one man. Who's that? Adam. Death through sin. Whether you think he means physical death, spiritual death, or both, um, it has to mean spiritual death regardless. Uh, But whether you think it's physical, spiritual, or both doesn't matter to this discussion right now. It's just the idea of whatever came through sin, um, whatever came about through Adam is what we're talking about with original sin here. So sin comes into the world through Adam, death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because why? 
according to the NIV, because all sinned. Look at the NLT. Um, of course, the NLT is more paraphrased. Let's start with, uh, yeah, same, Romans 5.12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam sinned brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Okay, so pretty similar. Let's go to the ESV. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The ESV and NIV are almost identical. Let's look at uh, one more. Okay, I'll look at the NASB, which is which is more wooden. People say literal. Now everyone's debating. Well, can words really be literal? Whatever. Okay, let's just say more wooden. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, or into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind because all sinned. You're going to see this in every known translation because all sinned. So if this verse says death spread to all people because all sinned, where does this idea of original sin and original guilt, meaning as a result of the original sin by Adam, all are guilty of his sin? Where does this come from? Well, it comes from primarily Augustine. And I'm going to show you why you're looking at these verses that have to do with original sin, um, or at least commonly said to do with original sin, and you're saying, why don't I really see original sin here when I'm breaking it down? Well, I'm going to show you why, and it's actually incredibly interesting, Um, and it seems like a lot more people are starting to come around to this. Uh, Augustine, self-admittedly, did not know Greek and Hebrew. He didn't do well with them. He didn't like it. He, he was not educated in Greek and Hebrew. So what Augustine had to do is he had to rely on a translation uh, that he could understand. And that translation was the Latin Vulgate. Um, now, it's just as sort of a fun fact here. Um, if you're wondering why the New Testament is mostly written in Greek, even though they're in Rome, okay, because what's, what's the... Uh, What's the native tongue in Rome that that was carried all throughout church history and history in general? It's Latin, right? But they hardly ever speak Latin. You you see, like, New Testament writings are all in Greek. So why are they in Greek? Well, they're in Greek because Alexander the Great brought Greek influence with him when he spread his empire uh, all over the place. And so that's why they're writing in Greek in the first century. But then they sort of recovered this idea of Latin, and now you have the Latin Vulgate, um, translated by Jerome. And this is the translation of the Bible that carried all the way through uh, church history with the Catholic Church up until pretty much the Reformation, when you had William Tyndale translate the Bible into English, you had Martin Luther translated into German, and all of a sudden, all of these translations were coming about where people could read it in their own language. Um, But all that to say, when Augustine read Romans 5.12, he didn't read what we just read. Why is that? Because the Latin Vulgate has a lot of errors in it, and this is one of them. Let me show you what Romans 5.12 says in the Latin Vulgate. Romans 5.12, this is translated into English from the Latin Vulgate. So a translation of a translation. Uh, It says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into this world, and by sin death, and so death passed upon all men in whom all have sinned. Did you see the difference there? that in whom is not original to any Greek manuscript. So the in whom and the one man are connected. In other words, if we read it like this, this is pretty much what Augustine would have read here, if I paraphrase. Wherefore, as through Adam, sin entered into this world and by sin death. And so death passed upon all men 
in whom Adam, right, when he's referring to the one man, so in Adam all have sinned. That's what Augustine would have understood, that sin entered into the world through Adam, and so in Adam all sinned, or in other words, all are guilty of sin. So this concept of original sin, I'm not saying this is the only place to go, but this is definitely the most common place to go. Augustine, who essentially brought this concept of original sin or original guilt into the church, did so while relying on a faulty translation. This is why it is so important to do hermeneutics, okay, to do your research to understand the Bible, not to rely on a a church figure, not to rely on Augustine or John Calvin or anyone from the Reformation or anyone from the last 20 years. Okay, this is why it's so important to try to understand the original context of the Bible and to do some digging. Because when you put your faith in one person and you end up creating a whole framework around the Bible based on these guys, when they're wrong about something, your whole worldview is going to tumble. And I'm not, I'm not knocking Augustine here. This is what he had access to. Okay. Um, he's obviously he's great for a ton of things. I mean, he's, he's one of the most well-known figures in the history of the church. I'm not saying don't read Augustine. In fact, I would tell you right now, go read city of God. If you've never read it, it's one of the greatest books ever written, but this is why we cannot put our soul trust in one figure and think that they're infallible and think that they can't be wrong and think that all of their theology must be correct. And there's no need to think or do the research because they've already done it for us. Okay, that's what we cannot do. So now let's just back up a little bit um, and read uh, this whole paragraph here, um, Romans five twelve through 14. So he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And of course, in this chapter, um, he's contrasting Adam with the new Adam, right? Christ bringing salvation into the world through one man. But still, it's kind of that same concept where Adam brought sin into the world. He was the first one to sin. That's where the original sin came about. And now we sin. Uh, I'm not making the argument that we're not corrupted by sin in some way. I'm not making the argument that sin had no effect. Remember, the question is, what is the effect of, of the original sin? Nobody can say it doesn't have any effect or else you're going to have to take that whole paragraph we just read and just throw it in the trash, <laughs> right? You're going to have to throw the whole New Testament and Old Testament for that matter in the trash. Of course, the original sin has an effect on every human being. Of course, we now have an inclination to sin. But there's a difference between saying every single one of us has sinned and we are sinners and we are unable to save ourselves and the sort of idea of original guilt um, and total depravity. We're not going to focus totally on on total depravity today because that's just going to take too much time and it's going to take away from the main topic here. Um, But yes, everybody has sin. Everybody is guilty of sin. There is no righteous person who who has ever lived except for Christ alone. And that's where you get the idea of Christ alone and those five souls we talked about last week. We are saved by him alone. He's the only one sufficient to do it, and he doesn't need anybody's help, um, which is going to sort of frame our discussion on Mary here in a few minutes. Now, if you do hold the view of original guilt, um, sort of what we just read from the Latin Vulgate, 
uh, this idea that um, Adam sinned and therefore we are all guilty of sin, every person who has ever lived, then you're stuck with a number of questions um, that you have to answer that we're going to uh, we're going to mention here and sort of try to respond to as we get to this idea of who Mary was and who she wasn't. Um, so, number one, the other verses I mentioned, Ephesians 2.3, we can look at that really quick. Um, Ephesians 2.3 says, this is from the NIV, all of us... Uh, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So, um, this is often used as a supporting verse for this idea of either total depravity or original guilt um, coming from original sin. So, you might have noticed that last line, it says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath wrath, God's wrath, of course. Uh, There are other translations like the ESV that says we are um, children of wrath by nature. But actually, I think the NIV captures the idea here, okay, that like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Well, what does the verse before it say, or the the sentence before it in the same verse, um, Ephesians 2, 3? It says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. So he's talking about how we are influenced by Satan. We are influenced by spiritual powers. We are influenced by uh, transgression, by sin, as we see in verse one. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We'll, We'll go over that real quick in a second too. But we were gratifying the cravings of our flesh and we were following its desires and thoughts rather than God's. It's sort of like when you look at the uh, book of 1 Samuel and you're watching this contrast between Saul and David when David comes onto the scene. You see Saul over and over again failing. And there's one main reason he keeps failing. It's not because he's incompetent. It's not because he's not strong enough. It's not because he doesn't have any natural leader skills. It's not because he can't be a great warrior. It's not any of that. The main reason Saul keeps failing over and over again is because he doesn't trust God. He doesn't obey God. He doesn't follow God's will and desire for him. He doesn't follow God's thoughts. He doesn't follow God's desires. He follows his own, and it costs them over and over again. And then when you have David come onto the scene, you have the opposite. David's not perfect. Okay, David committed some sins that you wouldn't believe he committed if you didn't know who he was. I mean, he got his best friend's wife pregnant and had his uh, best friend go out on the battlefield and withdrew all the troops so that the best his, his best friend Uriah would die. And, and he thought people wouldn't find out. Okay, he got his best friend's wife pregnant and killed his best friend. And that's just one of the many, many things that he had done. Uh, but even though David wasn't perfect, he seeked to obey God. He seeked to follow God's thoughts and to follow God's desires. And so what we're being told here in verse 3 Um, is that we wanted to gratify our own flesh, our own desires. We wanted to follow our own sinful thoughts and desires rather than God's will for us, rather than God's perfection, okay? And so then he follows up and says, for this reason, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Why? Because we were sinners. And why were we sinners? Because we sinned. We weren't sinners because somebody else sinned. We are sinners because we sinned, and that's why, by nature, we're deserving of God's wrath. 
I mean, I don't think anyone would read this and think otherwise if it weren't for extra biblical interpretations. And I know that last week we talked about how the Roman Catholic Church considers the uh, magisterium to be um, authoritative in interpreting scripture, that the Pope actually has authority in an authoritative interpretation where that interpretation is correct. But we kind of do the same thing when we put church figures on a pedestal and act as though their interpretation can't possibly be wrong. And this is one of those cases. If we didn't do that, I don't think anybody would interpret this verse that way, that we we were born deserving of wrath because of somebody else's sin. I don't think anybody would do that. And now let's back up a little bit because this is another, like I said, we're not going to spend a ton of time on total depravity, but it definitely ties in here. And in verse 1, we see that famous verse we've all heard, that you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And you've probably heard the famous line, I think it was Vody Bauckham, wonderful preacher, by the way. He's, he's got some really awesome stuff. I just disagree with him on these sort of things. Um, but he has that uh, famous line where he responded to, I think it was D.L. Moody's idea that um, if you imagine like you're you're in the water, you fell off of a ship, you're in a storm, somebody throws the life uh, ring out. What do they call it? Life float. I don't know the life float thing out. And all you have to do is grab it. Um, and he uses this sort of as an, uh, an analogy for grabbing onto Christ. We're putting your faith in Christ. It's all you need to do is grab onto Christ. Um, Vody Balkum has this famous line that dead men don't grab. And I have to admit when you hear that, it sounds really cool. Okay. It sounds like, oh man, that's a cool line. But what does the very next verse say? He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. So he's using sort of a, a poetic thing here, contrasting dead and live, death in life, right? He's doing sort of an interesting contrast here, but he uses that word live in the very next sentence. So when you say that we're dead in our transgressions, that's because we were dead in our sin. There is nothing we could do to undo what our sin has done to us, separated us from the love of, of Christ, separated us from the love of God and from relationship with God. This was his original ten, intention in the garden for us to be together with him, for the spiritual and physical realms to be together. And that was ruined. Okay. And now we were dead in our transgressions and sins, but it doesn't mean we were dead in every way. It doesn't mean that we can't acknowledge God is good when he reveals himself to us. And if it does mean that, then how can you even know that you know God is good now? How do you know you're really saved? How do you know you've really been regenerated? What if you think the things that are, are, are good actually aren't good and you're just misunderstanding scripture? So again, if it weren't for this, I guess, incorrect understanding of Romans 5.12, I don't think anybody would interpret this passage as telling us that uh, we are born with original guilt. Um, I, don't, I don't think it's a strong argument in and of itself. Um, now, another dilemma that this idea creates, if you hold the view of original guilt um, through Adam, or or if you hold the, the view of the federal headship of Adam, like let's say uh, because Adam is closer to God than us, he's the first one created, if he sinned, then it is necessarily true that you would sin. Um, he is the proxy for humanity. This is what this view says. And this is a view I used to hold, um, but it, it says that he's the proxy for humanity. In other words, he is the ultimate representative of, I mean, Christ is the ultimate representative. He gives us his righteousness. But in terms of like um, humanity in general, he would be our our representative. And so when he sinned, we all inherited that sin and guilt. And 
again, one of the dilemmas, one of the issues with this is what you do, um, not only with the birth of Christ, which we're going to, again, get into Mary in just a minute here, but you also have to face a dilemma of, well, what happens to a, a child or an infant who passes away? Well, the Roman Catholic Church believes that baptism removes that original guilt, right? We, we read that just last week in the Catechism. So the Catholic Church believes that that baptism at a very early age removes original guilt. But uh, let's say you're Catholic and um, a baby passes away before he or she is baptized. Or let's say you're Protestant and a baby passes away. In this case, it'd be the same question for both. Well, what happens? Now, what's going to happen is you might try to go to Scripture and find some, some passages um, to try to defend the idea that babies go to heaven. But now you have this philosophical issue on your hands of God sort of just overlooking sin, which he doesn't do. Or you have this idea of God saving somebody outside of uh, them putting their trust in Christ or outside of, of them knowing Christ. And this creates a big dilemma. Can God choose to forgive an infant's sin um, and their original guilt? Not their act of sin that they, they haven't knowingly sinned, but um, if they're born with original guilt, what do you do? Now, there are a few places, again, you might try to go, but it's going to contradict your your idea of original guilt. Um, what I would say is that because we're not born with original guilt, though we are born with an inclination to sin and we're born in a broken, sinful world, I don't really have to deal with that issue. And so I'll show you a couple verses that make a lot of sense when you don't have to deal with that issue. But you do, when you do have to deal with it, what do you do? You probably answer uncomfortably. You probably try to find some verses where it's like, okay, this kind of makes sense, but I hope they don't ask about original sin because then I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> That's probably what you're left having to do. Um, what I would do is I would go to Deuteronomy 139. And this is when Moses is told that um, his generation would not enter the promised land, right? So they're told that they would not enter. But then look at what what's, uh, what is said here. In verse 39, he says, in the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from bad or good from evil, they will enter the land. I will give it to them and they will take possession of it. So the next generation is going to go into the promised land. But notice what he says. Why does he say the children will get to go and not you? Well, the children will get to go because they don't know good from evil. They don't know good from bad. In regard to offending God, they really can't sin because sin would take actively offending and no, actively offending God. And you might say, well, then can an atheist not sin? Well, of course they can because Romans 1 says deep down everyone knows God exists and we suppress or push that knowledge away from us. But little children, babies don't know, children don't know good from evil or good from bad. So they were going to be permitted to go into the promised land. Now, I don't think this philosophy changes when you think about heaven. I don't think this concept changes when you think about heaven. Why would it? There's no asterisk next to this that says, well, except for when it comes to heaven, then they know good from evil and their sin counts. If a baby unfortunately passes away, I have complete confidence that they will be with the Lord the moment they pass. But if you hold this view of original sin, you can't say that. This is where the idea of purgatory came from. This is where the idea of uh, Mary being sinless came from. We'll get to that again in a few minutes here. 
But this is what you have to deal with. You have to hold these things in tension. And not only in tension, but you have a dilemma. Because these, this idea of a baby going to heaven and this idea of original guilt, they don't go together unless you have, you'd have to propose some other way for them to be saved outside of uh, trusting in Christ. There's a lot of consequences to that. Um, and then, of course, you also have the passage in 2 Samuel 12, 23, where um, David's first son passes away and David says, he's not going to come back to me, but I will go to be with him. I mean, he could just be saying, I'm going to die one day too. That's possible. And that's why I don't think that's as strong as a verse as Deuteronomy 139. But it doesn't seem like that's what he's saying. It seems like he has a little bit more of a positive outlook that he's going to see his son again one day, even though his son won't come back here um, to the earth. So, uh, but Deuteronomy 139, I think, is it, it shows the concept perfectly that they're, they don't know good from evil. They don't know good from bad. And this idea is not based on them having this original guilt because of what their parents did. The idea is based on they don't know good from bad or good from evil, so they'll be let in. Uh, This also raises questions about the idea of an age of accountability. Um, If we're not, uh, I guess, charged with original guilt through original sin, Is there an age of accountability where at some point you now are knowingly sinning and so you would be guilty of that sin? The answer to that would be, it seems so. Yeah, it seems like there is this concept of an age of accountability, but we're not given any kind of age. Um, I mean, when you're, you're doing the reasoning here, it only makes sense that if children don't know good from evil and adults do, eventually there comes a point you cross where you now know good from evil, (laughs) where you now knowingly sin, where you now knowingly violate your conscience. Um, And we're not given an age. But remember, this concept of Deuteronomy 139, it does imply that there is going to be a certain point where they do know. But this this would answer for somebody who might be mentally handicapped. This would answer for somebody who's a child. This would answer for pretty much all of those scenarios if we're not born with original guilt. And I actually think looking at children gives us kind of a good idea of what the original sin has brought about. So if you've ever had a child, whether they're, you know, probably starting, I don't know, a little under a year old and going on from there, like you don't have to teach them not to do wrong things. I mean, not not to do right things. You have to teach them not to do wrong things, right? Like it's inevitably... uh, true that if you have a, let's say a one and a half year old son, and then you have a baby like I do, like you have to teach your son not to go up and just smack the baby on the head for fun. Okay. It's like, it's, it's, it's how they learn. They just do these things sort of naturally and you have to give them consequences. You have to discipline them. You have to train them out of those ways and train them up in the way they should go. Right. It doesn't say, uh, don't train a child up in the way they shouldn't go. They're already going to do these things naturally. But it doesn't mean that they're sinning. So you have sort of this this really interesting thing with kids where you see them naturally affected by, I think, sin, where they're they're having to learn things that are good. It's I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, the things that they're interested in and, and the ways they learn are by a lot of times doing things we would consider bad things, hitting people, scratching people, biting people, taking from people, whatever it may be. Okay, we have sort of these selfish instincts. We have these, um, I guess you could say corrupted instincts in some ways, in a lot of ways. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that they're knowingly sinning. 
so they they provide an interesting case of the the effects of the original sin that has been passed to everybody without this idea of original guilt that they are condemned for a sin that somebody else has done especially when you look at Ezekiel 18 and it says that a person is not punished for their sins of their fathers okay so which one is it i mean you'd have to be contradicting god and ezekiel there now um with a little bit of this this original sin original guilt framework laid here now we can look at the catechism uh and we can see how some of these views of mary would have come up because they they pretty much logically follow if you're going to have this idea of original guilt if you have this idea of original guilt how could um how could God be born of a woman, Jesus Christ, be born of a woman in the incarnation and not be sinful? Uh, I remember there was one time we were at a Bible study kind of thing, and this is where I still held the um, the view of original guilt. And I remember that she asked about like you know the incarnation, Jesus being born um, of a woman and the seed being from God. She said, "Well, how if original sin is true, original guilt, how was Jesus not born with sin, or how was he not born guilty?" And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I understand the seed comes from God, right? That, I think that's what I told her. I said, well, the seed came from God, not from man. She said, well, I understand that, but are you saying a woman isn't sinful? Like, are you saying the eggs of a woman are pure and righteous and sinless, but the seed of a man is sinful? And to be honest, at the time, I didn't have a good answer. But this is actually a very good question. And it might, it might be a question that you've thought about before. Okay, Jesus is truly human. He was born of a woman. But this is where the Catholic Church kind of, I think, sees this inconsistency where it's like, okay, we believe in original guilt. Well, then Jesus would have been born original guilt with original guilt because he was born of a woman. So let's make the woman peerless. And that's the idea of the um, immaculate conception that Mary was also conceived without sin. And I'm going to show you this idea from the Catholic Catechism. But again, before we read this, uh, if you're a Protestant, you're already disagreeing with this idea of Mary being sinless, right? Me too. You're saying, well, no, Mary wasn't sinless. Christ is the only person who was sinless. I agree. But you're going to have to deal with this dilemma of how Christ was sinless if Mary was a sinner and she was born with original guilt. Um, so let's look at the Catholic, Catholic Catechism. I'm on page 136 here. This is part one um, of the Profession of Faith, paragraph two, and this is section one. It says, The Annunciation to Mary inaugurates the fullness of time, the time of the fulfillment of God's promises and preparations. Mary was invited to conceive him in, wh- in whom the whole fullness of deity would dwell bodily. The divine response to her question, How can this be? since I know not man, was given by the power of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. So you have Mary introduced here. Um, She's going to give birth to to Jesus. Now let's continue um, down to, this is section two, line 963, or I'm sorry, line 487. It says, what the Catholic faith believes about Mary is based on what it believes about Christ. And what it teaches about Mary illumines in turn its faith in Christ. So to start here, I would disagree with that. I don't think seeing Mary as sinless uh, in a perpetual virgin does anything good for Christ. I actually think it takes away from Christ's uniqueness as the only one who is sinless. 
the only one who is perfectly righteous in and of himself. Of course, we're given his righteousness upon trusting in him. So let's go down a little bit. Here's where it starts to get into detail. It says, Through the centuries, the church has become even more aware that Mary, full of grace through God, was redeemed from the moment of her conception. So she was redeemed from the moment of her conception. This is what the dogma of the Immaculate Conception confesses, as Pope Pius IX proclaimed in 1854. So this idea of Mary being sinless, um, of the Immaculate Conception, it wasn't a, it was, it was around, but it wasn't a dogma until 1854. Um, and he says the Most Blessed Virgin was, from the first moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, preserved immune from all stain of original sin. Did you hear that? The Catholic Church believes she was preserved immune from all stain of original sin, and God did this through a miracle. Now, where does Scripture say this? Nowhere. But remember the dilemma. In the Catholic Church, capital T tradition, the interpretation of the higher-ups in the Church, is equal to Scripture. It is an authoritative interpretation because of this idea that the popes have been passed down through the line of Peter. So here, when he says... Um, that Mary was preserved immune from all stain of original sin. It doesn't have to be in Scripture. Now they can kind of force it into Scripture. And this is exactly what happens. Um, if you go on to the, to the next sentence, it says, The splendor of an entirely unique holiness by which Mary is enriched from the first instant of her conception comes wholly from Christ. She is redeemed in a more exalted fashion by reason of the merits of her Son. The Father blessed Mary more than any other created person in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and chose her in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, it's interesting to me that those two verses quoted there from Ephesians 1, they actually apply to every believer. Those verses are not unique to Mary, neither is that concept. So it's interesting to me that they would use that there. Those apply to everybody. But you might have noticed a couple key words that Mary is exalted, that she has a a splendor of an entirely unique holiness, that she is enriched from the first instant of her conception. They're using terms here that the Protestant church would only use in regard to Christ. And so this brings that Christ alone idea into focus. So let's continue. The fathers of the Eastern tradition call the mother of God, the all holy and celebrate her as free from any stain of sin, as though fashioned by the Holy Spirit and formed as a new creature. Pause. Where do you see any of this in Scripture? Nowhere. There's nowhere to be found. This is something that came from outside of the church and is now forced onto the church. And remember, yes, the Catholic Church does this and claims it's authoritative, but Protestants can do it too in a much lesser sense or in a much less obvious sense. When we take church figures and we elevate them as though their interpretation is authoritative. So we have to be very careful of that. Be very careful of forcing your framework onto scripture rather than the other way around. Because it's very easy to do. And very easy to get caught up. And I know because I was caught up in it at one point, And I'm trying to get out of it. <laughs> so he says, by the grace of God, Mary remained free of every personal sin her whole life long. Okay, see? 
She remained personally uh, f- free of personal sin her entire life. So this is the reason, one of the reasons Mary is exalted. Um, and if we skip over, this is under Mary's divine motherhood. Um, it says, called in the Gospels the mother of Jesus, Mary is acclaimed by Elizabeth at the prompting of the Spirit and even before the birth of her son as the mother of my Lord. In fact, the one whom she conceived as man by the Holy Spirit, who truly became her son according to the flesh, was none other than the Father's eternal son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Hence, the church confesses that Mary is truly mother of God. So this concept comes from Luke 1, um, where in verse 43, uh, Elizabeth says, But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So they take this concept to be that she is literally the mother of God, not just the mother of Christ in in his humanity, um, but that she is the mother of God. And it's interesting because just in the sentence before, they, they say that Jesus is eternal. He's the second person of the Trinity. So on, on one hand, um, you have the Catholic Church, of course, affirming the doctrine of the Trinity, just as you would, but it's almost as though they add a fourth member. And they wouldn't put it that way, but I can't see what other way to explain it. If you're going to say Mary is the mother of God, not just in the sense of Jesus dwelling in man, of, of the second person of the Trinity, God dwelling in man. Um, because Jesus didn't just put on a human mask. He didn't just appear human. He actually truly became man in the incarnation. Um, and so they view her as sinless. They view her as a perpetual virgin. We're not going to spend much time on that. Um, it, it's in the catechism, it's referred to as Mary, the ever virgin. I will just read quickly. It says Mary's real and perpetual virginity, um, perpetual virginity, even in the act of giving birth to the son of God made man. So they have this idea that she was perpetually a virgin um, or an ever virgin. And then, of course, they make the argument that Jesus didn't have any actual brothers. Um, And let me just read. This is from section 500 here. In fact, James and Joseph, brothers of Jesus and the sons of another Mary, a disciple of Christ, whom St. Matthew um, significantly calls the other Mary. So you have views that say they're they're from another Mary. You have views that say uh, Jesus' brothers are actually his cousins. You have views that say that these were Joseph's children from another marriage. The problem is, again, not only can none of these really be substantiated in Scripture, but none of these are natural interpretations. It goes, it goes back to that idea of having to force an interpretation onto Scripture because you can't interpret these things naturally there. You have to take an outside source and force them onto Scripture. Um, we know that we're told in a, a number of places that Jesus did have siblings, number one. Um, let me see, in, in Matthew twelve forty six, in Luke eight nineteen, in Mark three thirty one, and in Matthew thirteen fifty five, we're told Jesus had siblings. Uh, James is his half brother, Jude is his half brother, he has a number of siblings, and the specific Greek word for brother is used here. Not a word for cousin, not a word for acquaintance, but the term for brother is used every time here. Um, and if you're gonna say that they came from a previous marriage of Joseph, First of all, we don't know if Joseph had a previous marriage. We're not told he did. Um, second of all, that would imply Mary's uh, or Joseph is much much older than um, Joseph is much older than Mary. That would imply that he had a whole family that is never mentioned to us explicitly in the Bible. Um, and when you look at 
Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem, traveling to Egypt. Uh, there's no other siblings listed. Now, in, in the Catholics' favor, it could just be because Jesus is spotlighted there and there's no reason to name his other siblings. But again, it's, it's an unnatural interpretation. Um, and my question for you, remember, in all of this, is you have to reconcile this too. Because if Jesus, or I'm sorry, if Mary isn't sinless, if Mary was not born by God's grace without original guilt, then how could Christ be born without original guilt? Well, the simple answer, in my opinion, is that original guilt isn't biblical. And if it is biblical, prove it to me, demonstrate it to me, send me an argument, email it to me. Um, some A lot of times people type up really well reason argument. So if you have one, send it to me. I would love to hear it. I would love to do a response to it. Um, I used to hold this view of original guilt and I no longer do. And there's a lot of reasons, including the ones I just said. Uh, but if you have a good argument, send it to information at apologetics.org. I would love to see it. I would love to go through it. Maybe you have something I haven't heard, but as far as I'm concerned, it came into the church with Augustine. It can't be demonstrated clearly from scripture. Um, and I really don't see any reason to follow it while I see many, many reasons to reject that doctrine. So thank you for listening. Would love to hear your opinion. Um, and otherwise, I will see you back here next Monday night at 6 p.m. on The Universe Next Door.